Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm sorry to fade it out, but we are now at 7.30. Um, if you want to watch the rest of that, it is available from the museum shop. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a couple of minutes more, but towards the end of it, there is um, a Ministry of Aviation Propaganda film on building the Wellington, uh, which is fascinating. So I would say if you do get a copy of that, it is well worth now, at this point in the evening, I need to choose my words carefully. Um, no one can escape the carnage that took place in Paris last Friday evening. And I'm sure it's moved us all. For me, it could have been any one of us in this room tonight. Could have been there on business, it could have been a weekend, a holiday, uh, just indiscriminate. As Shelley's poem says, we are many, but they are few. And I think it's worth remembering that. They hate our freedom and democracy. Um, so can we just stand for just a couple of moments and reflect on what went on that evening? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Vernon Creek. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for welcoming me here this evening. I've already been made welcome with a, a lovely meal and a nice drink, and I'm sure your applause suggests that there might be further welcome in store. Um, I've come to you tonight to, to give you an overview. You, you might have noticed the title is slightly different, perhaps, to what some of you were expecting, but it's, it's an overview of the experience of the British side of things fighting the First World War in the air. And what we're about to hear are first-hand accounts taken from our remarkable archive at the Royal Air Force Museum up at Hendon. I'm sure uh, a great many of you have already been there and visited, and if you haven't, why not? You know? <laughs> um, and you're very welcome. It, it's partly by accident, partly by design, that it's probably one of the biggest aviation archives in the world. Uh, you know, when the museum was formed in the middle of the 1960s, about 50 years ago, collecting uh, was given a, a, a huge kickstart by the fact that we were the official museum for the Air Ministry to deposit its records, uh, and we're the uh, Royal Air Force's official collection. So, of course, we benefited in that, in that sense. But in the, over the last 50 years, we continue to receive countless donations of material, personal effects, uh, memoirs and so on from so many people that serve. So we do have some very unique treasures. Uh, some of them belong to very ordinary people who served, and uh, of course some of them belonging to incredibly well-known and uh, quite moving uh, accounts uh, of people who uh, are much better known to all of us. But we're going right back to the, the early part of our story, and um, this begins at the start. Uh, so, let's see if I can get this to work today, and I'm sure I can, but there we are. There's the start. So just over a decade separated the world's first sustained powered flight made by Orville right on the 17th of December 1903 and the outbreak of the First World War. It was during the years 1914 to 1918 that the importance of military aviation was firmly established. Early flying is surrounded by myths and legends which often obscure the reality of what was done in the first war in the air. We know about the Red Baron, Knights of the Air, and we sometimes describe the aircraft as being made of sticks and string. Not really. Uh, of course, what exactly is reality? The men and women who were caught up in all this, they all had individual and very different experiences. So although there's, you can start to form patterns, everyone's different. And it's the, the, the personal accounts that we're going to hear tonight, uh, all taken from the manuscripts, very often written by the, the hand of the, the, the person who 
who remembered these things that can be found in the Royal Air Force Museum's archives. Letters, diaries, memoirs do convey some of these really uh, special experiences of men and women at the time. Summarising personal experiences of people involved in the air war does carry a risk of overgeneralisation or, or, or simplification. Uh, it's always interesting, it's always inspiring, but how historically reliable is it? Well, in his book, The Soldier's Tale, Samuel Hines identifies two quite different forms of personal narrative, diaries and letters, which mainly reflect a need to record and report the everyday details of life, and another source, memoirs, and memoirs are usually written long after the events have been experienced. So, as historical sources, they've both got value and they've both got shortcomings. Uh, diaries and letters written at the time, fresh, contemporary, with no overview, no hindsight whatsoever. And, of course, memoirs, where someone's got time to reflect, edit, leave things out keep things secret from you. <laughs> so, both very different kinds of sources. You have to, you have to uh, sift between the two uh, and make your decisions. Uh, we have some representative accounts from the archive, the museum, and we've got some excerpts taken from published memoirs, but very often the published memoirs that some of us may have read actually have um, their original source material lodged in the museum archive. Except where references to published books have been included, none of the other, other accounts have ever been printed. Most accounts are primary sources of information written quite close to the events. Personal experience history does have limitations, but it does allow us to experience what people were thinking and what they were feeling. And we can really get back to the time uh, that we're trying to focus on this evening. British aviation had its, ex had its origins in mid-19th century ballooning. But it was in 1912 that the Royal Flying Corps was created. Uh, the Royal Naval Air Service was also created uh, under the name of RNAS, just before, just weeks before the outbreak of the fighting. Only four Royal Flying Corps squadrons accompanied the British Expeditionary Force to France in August 1914. And they rapidly, those four squadrons, became caught up in the fighting retreat from Mons in Belgium, as you can see right here. John Salmond, then the officer commanding three squadron, and he later became a Marshal of the Royal Air Force, described the retreat. When a suitable field had been found, all ranks would help the farm people carry the corn sheaves to one side to give the aeroplanes a clear run. Towards evening, the pilots of our four squadrons would home on the new aerodrome, land, produce their maps showing the black lines of German troops moving along the many roads, and hand in their reports. They then would make their messes in barns and beside hedges, while the Flying Corps clerks sat on packing cases in their tents, typing out the reports and the orders for the next day by the light of hurricane lamps and candles. Sergeant James T.B. McCudden, later to become Major McCudden, VC, and a leading fighter race of the conflict, who was killed in a crash during 1918, described the primitive techniques used in 1914 to counter enemy aircraft. About 20th of August 1914, various machines were out doing reconnaissances, and on this day, I think, uh, Lieutenant Joubert did a four-hours reconnaissance, and landing on a Belgian aerodrome was mistaken for a German. He had an awful time before he convinced them that he was English. 
At this time, the British national marking consisted of a painted Union Jack on each wingtip. Altogether, uh, we were having a most pleasant time at Mauberge when, about the 22nd of August, a strange aeroplane flew over us at about 4,000 4, feet. Uh, and the aerodrome lookout reported it to be a German machine, the first we'd seen in the war. We all turned out armed with rifles, and about six machines got ready to go up in pursuit. Mr. Jubert, who stood near me, remarked that he thought it was a learner biplane. All the machines which went up were loaded with, loaded with hand grenades as the intention then was to bring a hostile aeroplane down by flying over it and dropping bombs on it. <laughs> the German easily got away, although it looked at one time as if Captain Longcroft would be able to intercept him on a BE-2A. About half an hour after the German had departed, a Henry Farman of Number 5 Squadron, fitted with a machine gun, was still climbing steadily over the aerodrome about 1,000 feet in a strenuous endeavour to catch the Bosch. This day, Sergeant Major Gillings was wounded whilst out on reconnaissance with Lieutenant Noel of Number 2 Squadron. I saw him assisted out of his machine. He had shot down a, a German with a rifle a splendid performance, no doubt. Sergeant Major Gillings was the first British soldier to be hit in the war and the first to be wounded in an aeroplane in any war. On the 23rd of August, things began to hum. Captain Charlton, DSO of A Flight, did three reconnaissances during the morning on three separate Blériots each one being badly shot about by rifle fire from the ground. It should be remembered that in those days everyone, friend and foe, fired at every aeroplane, no matter what its nationality. <laughs> Soon the front line became stabilised and aircraft became increasingly important for seeing into the enemy's rear areas. An extract from the diary of Lieutenant Willie Reed from October 1914 conveys some of the experience of early war flying. Reed and his observer were spotting for an artillery battery when they saw a German aircraft 300 feet higher than they were. Reed wrote, I tried to climb up nearer to him, and in the meantime, Evans was shooting at him with the rifle. The German turned twice, trying to get me immediately below, so as to drop a bomb. But I kept clear, knowing what he was trying to do. I continued to keep him on my left front and uh, below me, but he would quickly climb higher than my aircraft. But I was a little faster and was gaining on him. In the end, after having some shots at us, he made off to his own lines while we gave chase until we came within range of Archibald and then we left him and went on with our observation of fire. Joining the Royal Flying Corps and training. At the start of the war, the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Naval Air Service numbered in total only about 2,000 men. By the end of the war, the RFC and RNAS had been combined into the Royal Air Force, which together with the Women's Royal Air Force numbered well over 300,000. This necessitated a huge programme of expansion, requiring the recruiting of pilots, observers and ground crew. Why did men join the flying services? There were many reasons, but certainly some had had enough of their lives in the army or in the navy, uh, and some wanted to avoid trench warfare. Flying was no easy option, but it did pro promise more opportunity for individual action. Training methods in those early days were rudimentary. George Carmichael described in his memoirs the process of learning to fly in 1912 on a Bristol box kite of the type seen here. And you can see a lovely reproduction 
at the Shuttleworth Collection. Uh, and as you all know, the, that was constructed in the 1960s to fly over here uh, and to appear in uh, those magnificent men and their flying machines. There it is. That's the Bristol box kite. The instructor sat in front and below the pupil. The pupil shared the joystick by leaning forward with his arms, stretched round the instructor's neck, and, of course, could not reach the rudder bar. Next, the pupil took the pilot seat with the instructor behind and did straights just a few feet off the ground. Then came the real act of courage and judgment when the instructor sat behind the pupil to fly a circuit. Finally, the pupil was allowed to do straights and then circuits by himself. Later in the war, training became more formalised. Technical knowledge on aero engines, wireless, the principles of flight and so on were taught in the classroom. This would be followed by learning to fly and training in the practical applications of flying at a succession of different units. Despite advances in training methods, flying training was still a dangerous activity in 1918. And this was accepted by the pilots. Lieutenant H.P. Woodman witnessed an accident at Hounslow in 1918. They were six Sopwith Camel fighter aeroplanes and passed us at about 2,000 feet. The flight commander gave the signal to dive and they all went down in formation. Suddenly, we saw one brake formation go into a spin and straighten to the ground. To us, it was just one of those things that happened in those days, particularly amongst the most budding pilots. Even when pilots got to the front, the brevity of their training often meant that they had to fly aircraft with which they were unfamiliar. Lieutenant Frederick Ortweiler joined 29 Squadron during the peak of the Passchendaele fighting and was introduced to his new mount, the manoeuvrable but skittish French Newport 17. After his first acclimatisation flight on the 7th of October 1917, he wrote, spent the time getting into the habit of continually looking around, practising changing drums, diving and getting my sights on objects on the ground and trying to turn. Every time I tried to do a right-hand turn, I got into a spin. I cannot fly the bus a bit, but I'm assured that this is always the case at first, and we'll, I will soon get the hang of it with practice. Ortweiler didn't have the time to learn. He was captured, along with his intact Newport, a week later. The, the people, the people. The perception that the Royal Flying Corps' aircraft were flown mainly by aristocratic cavalry officers may have been true at the, the very start, but uh, well into the war was certainly a false uh, picture. According to Ewart Garland, however, in September 1916, there was a distinctly public school element in the RFC, but this evaporated as casualties increased. And the intake of replacement pilots, plus the rapid growth of the Flying Corps, brought along a truly democratic society, much strengthened by rugged colonials, notably Australians and Canadians. Apart from when actually flying, airmen generally had a much more comfortable life than soldiers in the front line. Herbert Rowell, a pilot with 8 Squadron in late 1915, later told how we were allowed to take one of the Crossley-like tenders into Amiens every Wednesday to do our own and the mess shopping. Our afternoons in Amiens... Sorry, there we are. Our afternoons in Amiens were always worth looking forward to. We would leave the squadron sometime about three or half past, arriving in Amiens in time for a good tea, after which we would order our table for dinner and go and do our shopping. 
Now you could buy almost anything you wanted in this town. You might have easily forgotten that France was at war. But flying was dangerous and ways of unwinding were absolutely necessary. Flight Sergeant Horace Heels described Christmas Day with 24 Squadron in 1916. Some of the officers and two of the sergeants got hopelessly drunk and one officer got his eye kicked in by a sergeant. You can guess that the dance they did wasn't a gentle waltz. One sergeant kept on crying hysterically for a pilot who'd been lost the same day and couldn't be pacified. Another was drinking neat whiskey and Benedictine liqueur like water and soon became lively. <laughs> By the aid of grease paints, they gave this man a gorilla-like appearance, which caused immense fun. He tried to kiss and cuddle the officers, who thoroughly enjoyed it and accepted his embraces gracefully. You would hardly imagine a scene like this just behind the lines, with guns booming all the time. And if anyone enjoyed themselves better than this squadron, they were lucky. But not every squadron had the same esprit de corps. Commenting after the war on his wartime diary entries, Ewart Garland recalled, the frequent references to drinking parties paint a true picture of life in the Royal Flying Corps at the front in 1916. But as the war progressed, I think we had less time or inclination for wild times. Naturally, conditions vary considerably at different squadrons. For instance, I was posted temporarily to a squadron nearby and found conditions totally different from those at my mess. No wild parties, poor rations, no delicacies and no camaraderie as we'd enjoyed at number 10. In the main... Good or poor conditions of life at squadrons depended on the character of the CO. Casualties and stress. Accounts of great war aviation often focus on the glamour of the fighter races. Yet as the, the air war progressed, it became just as much an attritional struggle as the war on the ground albeit on a smaller scale. Casualty rates varied, depending on which side had a temporary advantage in aircraft technology and on the pace of ground and air operations. One early casualty was Lieutenant William Ackland. While flying on a reconnaissance mission on the 20th of June, 1915, he and his observer, 2nd Lieutenant R.V. to Halpert, had already shot down a German aircraft when their Vickers FB-5 gun bus was hit by anti-aircraft fire which holed the fuel tank. The aircraft caught a light, but against the odds, they managed to fly back to the Allied lines. While recovering in No. 7 Stationary Hospital at Boulogne two days later, Ackland sent a letter to his parents. I cannot write myself as my head and eyes and wrists are all tied up with bandages, but the chaplain is writing for me. It was hell coming down, all in flames, and the burning petrol rushing about all over the machine. This burnt us a good deal and nearly suffocated us as well. Fortunately, the two men were protected to a degree by their leather flying clothing. He continued, By the grace of God, we just managed to land a few hundred yards outside of the battle line. In another ten seconds, the tail and controlling apparatus, which were already alight, would have had insufficient grip of the air to keep the machine at all under control. As it was, the speed indicator showed well over 120 miles an hour, before it was burnt away, and it was most doubtful if I could prevent the machine in its flaming state from crashing nose first into the ground. If it had done this, there would have been nothing left of us to bury. We were extraordinarily lucky in that, though we had some 50 odd rounds of ball ammunition left of what we carried for our machine gun, and it went off round by round, the bullets crashing through the framework, not one of them hit either of us. 
many were not so fortunate. The two-seater army cooperation squadrons were particularly vulnerable due to their work and the shortcomings of their aircraft. As Second Lieutenant S.E. Rowley of 59 Squadron recorded, although a good machine for the work it was supposed to do, that was the ordinary observation work, the RE-8 stood very little chance against superior numbers. It was slow and could not be stunted. They were practically at the mercy of Fokker biplanes. Most of our squadron's casualties occurred while on this duty. From August the 21st, 1918, when the Allied push commenced on our front, to November the 11th, 1918, we lost 40 officers in less than three months. Only eight, including myself, of the original flying officers remained in the squadron right through that whole push. Men who were physically untouched by flying could suffer in other ways. In mid-1918, Lieutenant J.C.F. Wilkinson had been flying with 46 Squadron for about a month when, as he recalls in his memoirs, he succumbed to the strain of flying. He later wrote, For some days I had been feeling low. All day long I wanted to sleep and sleep and sleep. Even when on patrol it needed a big effort to make myself take an interest in what was going on. The war seemed never-ending, and all the fun went out of flying. There appeared no chance of my ever becoming a first-class scout pilot with a string of enemy machines to my credit. And when I began to shiver and ache all over, it was with a sigh of thankfulness that I climbed into an ambulance and was deposited at number 41 Stationary Hospital, some miles further back. I was tired of the strain of flying under war conditions, tired of the incessant squirming round in my seat looking for Huns, sick of the coughing bark of Archie shells and the taste of burnt castor oil. I was weary of waiting to be shot down, for I knew it could only be a question of time before that happened. Either that or my nerves would crack up completely. For those fortunate, fortunate enough to survive being brought down behind enemy lines, relief was tempered by the knowledge that they would be in the bag. On the 2nd of April 1917, 2nd Lieutenant Peter Warren of 43 Squadron and his observer, Sergeant Ruel Dunn, encountered Richthofen's Yaster 11. Warren wrote home to his mother later. Several bullets hit the instrument board in front of me. One passed through my flying boot just below the knee without touching my leg. My observer was, by that time, unable to use his gun. And as the enemy kept on diving onto my tail, my own forward-firing gun was useless. In fact, I did not fire a shot the whole time. I kept on manoeuvring away from the enemy machine until, at the end of a spinning nosedive, I crashed into the ground, breaking the undercarriage and the lower planes, but escaping any injury myself. I immediately started to get Paul Dunn out of the machine, who had lost a great deal of blood and was unconscious. When some German soldiers arrived, he helped me bandage his wound with a very good will. I brought him round with a little brandy from my flask, and he was able to speak a little. He was then carried away on a stretcher and died, I was told, a few hours later in hospital. Later, from Crayfeld Camp, Warren reflected on the events, not knowing Richthofen himself had caused his departure and captured uh, and Dunn's death. My first two nights here were rather miserable and I hardly slept, thinking all the time of all the things I might have done and did not do, which of course is quite useless. 
Yet it's a far cry being a prisoner from flying, which gives one's mind a sense of freedom than anything else. It was a good life back at the squadron. And I do wish I could be there to go on with the work I really enjoyed and at which I think I was beginning to be quite useful. Scout and fighter operations. In 1914, air fighting was done using rifles, revolvers and grenades. From the end of 1914 into 1915, aircraft began to be fitted with machine guns in increasing numbers, like this Morris Farman. Yet air fighting tactics were still primitive, as Willie Reed described in a letter to his sister and brother-in-law in October 1915. Went up at 3.10pm to do a line reconnaissance and saw a Hun flying over their side and, as I have a machine gun now, went after him. We passed and repassed one another several times, three times, quite close, blazing away hard and we couldn't hit each other. After this effort, he suddenly went down low and back towards his aerodrome. About a quarter of an hour later, there was another Bosch flying up and down his own lines, as much to say, come on over here. So I just popped across and we had a good old set two at 9,000 feet. We circled round one another and occasionally passed one another at less than 30 yards. We simply couldn't shoot for toffee. He only hit my machine twice. Then my ammunition ran out and I finished off with my revolver. And after that, I had to retreat. As the war progressed, fighter aircraft were specially developed and tactics became increasingly sophisticated. <coughs> fighter and artillery corps work. Sorry, reconnaissance and artillery corps work, I should be saying. The best known aviators are the First World War fighter aces, but it's forgotten very often that the reason why men like Albert Ball, Manfred von Richthofen and other people became those fighter aces is because either directly or indirectly their job was to protect or to seek to attack their own or the enemy's observation aircraft. Reconnaissance was the primary role of aircraft in the war and this had been recognised before the war had begun. The test came in war. Lieutenant Gilbert Mapplebeck, flying a BE-2, made the Royal Flying Corps' first ever wartime reconnaissance flight on the 19th of August 1914, as he recorded in his diary. At 8.15, Joubert, who was going in the Blériot, and I were sent for by General Henderson, who told us each our particular jobs. Joubert was to go straight to bren Lalande via Nivelle. I was to go to Jean Bleu near Namur. He was to be over friendly territory and to look out for Belgians. And I was to look for advanced German cavalry. But the sortie did not go as planned, for as he recorded in uh, this extract uh, from his report to General Henderson, Mr Nivelle arrived at a large town. I was at 3,000 3, feet and in clouds, but could not place it on the map. On my return, I discovered this to have been Brussels. Despite this inauspicious start, aircraft very soon proved their worth in the first weeks of the war. As the front then became entrenched, the war of movement stopping, a more effective method than sketching was required to record reconnaissance information. The need was rapidly filled by aerial photography. As described by Herbert Rowell, who served in 8th Squadron in late 1915. As far as possible, the whole of the German front line would be photographed for a depth of about 1,000 yards every single month. 
Now in a good photo, it's wonderful what you can see. If you march half a dozen men across a field in single file, their tracks can be picked up with a magnifying glass. The gunners spend half their lives trying to hide their guns or camouflage their battery positions. If you made a trench and reinforced it with barbed wire, you will not only be able to see if it's a deep trench by the shadows or if it has water in it or by the chalk heaps, but you will be able to see how many rows of barbed wire entanglement it has in front of it and which way the field was last ploughed. Artillery spotting became one of the major activities for two-seater aircraft on the Western Front. As Herbert Rowell recalled, communication was done by wireless. Each squadron was given a piece of the line to look after and so many guns. Each aeroplane has a transmitting set each battery of consequence will have a receiving instrument, operators and code letters by which it's known, and it can always be called upon to fire. Just what effect successful artillery ranging by aircraft had upon troops uh, in trenches on the ground can be felt in the experience of Lieutenant Guy Chapman, a British officer who experienced firsthand the technique of artillery spotting as carried out by his German enemies. One morning, four Bosch planes came calmly over. The few English machines beat it for home. I didn't blame them. They knew their own business and they probably were not fighting machines. The four Germans sailed up over Bukhoi, wingtip to wingtip. When they seemed to be flying nearly overhead, I caught the sun flash on four objects swinging down and away. A second later, four bombs crashed into the village. Two or three times our line was registered very conscientiously with the assistance of an aeroplane. On the afternoon of April the 4th, the enemy suddenly set about two left companies uh, with field guns and howitzers and taking them in enfilade, knocked their trenches about badly. At the end of two hours, Gwinnell's three junior officers and nine men had been killed or wounded. Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, uh, Ralph Hamilton, Royal Field Artillery Master of Belhaven, killed in March 1980, recorded in favourable terms his own working relationship with the crews of reconnaissance aircraft. I was rung up at 9.30am by HQ to say that an aeroplane had gone up to register P6 for me. This is the crossroads at West Oak, where we halted for luncheon one day when we were with the 22nd Brigade. I remember the place well. It's funny that we should now be firing at it. My first salvo was reported at B2 o'clock. This meant that the line was nearly correct and I was 100 yards over. And the next, OK, which means correct. My new instrument that I've made for this work justified itself. I was, not, I was much bothered by Hun aeroplanes that kept coming over. I am afraid they must have seen me firing, though I stopped firing several times. Still, it's bad luck on my aeroplane to keep him waiting while he is being shot at. The Flying Corps man who was observing for me came to tea and told me all about this morning's shoot. He was very pleased and said our shells were bursting right over the target. Royal Flying Corps ground wireless operators accompanied the guns in order to communicate by wireless with spotting aircraft. While serving with the Royal Artillery Siege Battery, RFC ground wireless operator Monty Pocock received the military medal, as did a number of other operators. He later recorded the dangers of these operations. The battery next moved to Camel Village, which soon proved to be a hot shop. Had my mast blown down three times in two days. It was just about this time Lieutenant Maddox visited me after I had spent 36 hours in a gas mask. Imagine what I felt like telling him 
when he said I should splice all the ropes and paint different colours around the mast. I was saved having to do all this nonsense by the major who heard the instructions. He, in no uncertain way, told the lieutenant where to go and not to come bothering again. The battery position was too hot, so we had to pull the guns back behind Kemmel Hill. Towards the end of June, we were completely wiped out. All the guns were destroyed and all the ammunition blown up. We suffered very heavy casualties. Only 128 men left unwounded out of the total complement of the battery. I was sounded the next day. Kite balloon observers were also used as the eyes of the guns from 1915 onwards. They were equipped with parachutes in case of enemy attack. Balloons required different handling to aircraft and a training establishment was set up at Roehampton. Lieutenant H.P. Woodman, an RNAS officer, trained there in 1918 and recalled the balloons and their launching. A captive kite balloon has six sets of guy lines, three on each side, port and starboard, and were attached to the bows, midships and stern of the envelope. Each guy line needed 15 to 20 men to hold her down. The first command was to haul down to get the balloon through the shed doors and then walk to the winch. We held the balloon steady while it toggled on. Then we took off the strain and finally let go. Each officer cadet took it in turn to give the orders. One was especially nervous, and instead of saying, cast off and untoggle the picketing lines, he said, cast off and unpickle the toggling lines, falling over a sandbag as he did so. With the great opportunities afforded by observation, carried out in captive balloons, it soon became desirable for one side to remove the balloons of the other side thus preventing reinforcements and defensive installations from being seen. Fighter aircraft of both sides attempted to shoot down enemy balloons, but as now Captain James McCudden found on one assignment, this was far from easy. The next day I had quite a lot of excitement. Several balloons east of Ypres were making themselves very objectionable to our frontline trenches in particular, and so a strafe was organised to annoy the aforesaid balloons, which we could see distinctly from our aerodrome at Abile. I left the ground at 1pm to attack a balloon at Poole Capel. And so off, the line, off to the lines I went and crossed the trenches at about 2,000 feet. The balloon was about 2,500 feet high while I crossed but the enemy were visibly hauling it down. And by that time, I was subjected to an intense fire by everything that the enemy could fire with. I was then only, only the only machine over the line, so the local anti-aircraft positions were able to give me a really hot time, their undivided attention, and they did it to some purpose too. Black smoke seemed to be on all sides of me. And by the time I got to within half a mile of the balloon, the AA fire was altogether far too intense to carry on through. So I fired a drum of cartridges at the balloon at about 700 yards range to no apparent effect, and then turned southwest for the shelter of the friendly salient. I pushed my nose down and recrossed our trenches at 1,000 feet over Bellaward Lake. I decided that the man who brings down a German balloon is indeed a hero. During offensives, it was important to know how the attack was going. Low-flying aircraft could identify the progress of friendly troops and mark out enemy strong points. Initial experiments at Luz in 1915 were not a success. But later in the war, so-called contact patrols were added to the list of tasks performed by aircraft. 
This often did not work as planned and contact patrols were very vulnerable to ground fire. Second Lieutenant Charles Smart described such a mission during the fighting around Oppie on the 28th of June 1917, providing close support for the British troops on the Gavrel Road. We made this trip six times and on the last journey had a stroke of luck. For we just got over the lines in a break in the mist. Enemy machine guns opened up at once, but the machine was bouncing up and down so much that we must have made a very difficult target. Curry thumped on his klaxon horn, and as if by magic, a row of red flares appeared on the ground below us, right along the line of our proposed objective. Curry nearly went mad with excitement but it did not take him a second or two to pinpoint them on his map. Then he poured a drum of ammunition in the direction of the enemy machine gun fire, and I turned and fought our way back along the Gavrel Road. Bombing increased in scale and effectiveness as the war progressed, a reminder of the extent to which chivalry in the air was now only limited to a relatively small number of occasions. After joining 55 Squadron, which was conducted, conducting long-range distance, long-distance raids into Germany in October 1917, Hugh Walmsley described to his parents his initial impressions of these operations. We must be doing a tremendous amount of damage. I am feeling very fit and have the satisfaction of knowing that I have caused the Hun already probably hundreds of pounds worth of damage, beside killing a good many. Each bomb you drop, whether on the Zepp sheds, aerodromes or Hun billets, etc., gives you a certain amount of satisfaction. And scrapping Hun machines in the air is more exciting than the game of rugger. The most unpleasant thing of all is being archied from the ground. Although this sounds as if he was keeping the worst news from his parents, in letters over the next two weeks, he went on to report that his observer had been grounded due to a frost-bitten face. Uh, On one occasion, the windmills driving his fuel pump froze at 14,000 feet, forcing him to turn back from a raid. And on another day, his observer's gun jammed as he was being pursued by a German fighter at 20 yards distance. In a letter to his father, 2nd Lieutenant Donald Goody described a bombing raid on a railway station at night in April 1918. We got archied and machine-gunned like fury. It's horrible to get into a searchlight and be unable to get out of it again. It fairly puts the wind up one. As we crossed the lines... We got machine gun from the ground pretty considerably. I had, however, the great satisfaction of firing at moving lights on the road and see them going out. I am glad to say all of our people got back safely, but our observer was wounded with a bullet in the calf of his leg. Home defence. The airships of the German army and navy occupied a fearful place in the imagination of the British public prior to the war. Writers such as H.G. Wells had foretold how Britain would be bombarded by this sinister menace. Britain was relatively unprepared, despite being foretold. During 1915, visits by the Zepps increased in frequency and effectiveness. They reached as far as Hull in the north and forced the Admiralty and the War Office to act. The defences of London were strengthened and home defence squadrons hurriedly formed, but their equipment was often not up to the task, despite the attempts of the pilots. However, German Army airship uh, SL-11 was over Hertfordshire near Cuffley, on the night of the 2nd of September 1916. What happened next was seen by large numbers of people. A little girl of eight, living with her aunt, tells her parents what she saw from nearby Potter's Bar. I was waken up by a zeppelin and came downstairs. 
and we sat down and had a little light and we heard lots of guns. We heard Mr Pollock call, look, look. And there we looked and went onto the lawn. And at first we all thought it was a bomb on fire. And then we saw it was a burnt zeppelin coming. And we thought it was coming on the house. Then we went in and the remains of it was the aeroplane got above and shot it. The pilot was William Leaf Robinson. And this was the first zeppelin to be destroyed on British soil. He was later awarded the Victoria Cross for this feat. During 1917, the threat was replaced by the fleet of German bombers, collectively known as Goethe's. In fact, they consisted of a number of different manufacturers' types. The Kago bomber squadrons had learned their craft on the Romanian and the Macedonian fronts in 1916. And in early 1916, they were trans- sorry, uh, in early 1917 were transferred to the attacks on London after the first of the Zeppelin losses. Again, their performance made them very difficult to intercept. Captain Bernard Rice, used to experiencing and executing bombing raids in France, on leaving London in late 1917 found himself in one of these raids in London, but was unmoved. I was present at Saturday night's raid. I was amused. Archie went mad and fired like hell. I never heard a bomb or a hun the whole evening long. In fact, I wanted my money back. First came the bobbies pedalling round on bikes with a take-cover notice and continuous ringing bell attached. The streets cleared instantly. The tubes were thronged. All the people in the hotel were in the gentleman's department downstairs. When it was all over, I expressed my disappointment to the club's secretary, Major Morley, and he was quite indignant. "'Biggest raid we've had yet,' he declared." But where were the goaters and where were the bombs, I asked. Didn't you hear them dropping all around? And I could see the machines hovering overhead, said he. The place was sprinkled literally with archy bits and thousands of children were picking about in the roads the next day. But bomb raid, wash out. (laughs) Nevertheless, the hysteria created by these raids placed pressure on both the Admiralty and the War Office, and this was one of the main reasons for the creation of a new theme, a unified service, the Royal Air Force, on the 1st of April 1918. The Women's Royal Air Force. Although women had been working on aerodromes since 1916, with the formation of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps and the Women's Royal Naval Service in 1917 and the Women's Royal Air Force in 1918, their role became increasingly significant. Over 30,000 passed through the ranks of the Women's Royal Air Force between 1918 and 1920, performing many tasks previously performed by men. Sub-leader Mary Wilson was a driver at three fighting schools, Sedgeford, and wrote of the inoculations against the prevalent Spanish flu, which scythed down many in the services in 1918. We have all been half inoculated against flu, and we have to be done again in ten days. It's nothing. Lots of girls have been ill and declare their arms are very painful and stiff and got days off, but poor old me, tough as an old house, never felt it, and I had to carry on. Another driver, member Grace Berry, worked with 44 Squadron at Haino Farm in Essex. She described in her diary the squadron sports on the 18th of August, 1918. The squadron sports today, no work from us, of course, this morning. Everyone is busy preparing for this afternoon. 
We lazy MT drivers retired to our huts and did various things. I wrote a letter home. After a small and hurried lunch, up we trooped to the hangars and proceeded to take snapshots of all the girls and Mr Pritt on his donkey with his two dogs. The officers very kindly and nicely took charge of us girls, so we had good seats. Of course, I broke the record for badness on the MT driving and did not win anything, although I thoroughly enjoyed everything. The pillow fight on the greasy bar was killing And in order to see this, Edsel and I rolled up barrels of paraffin on the top of which we stood. These women were a new feature in the RAF and sent a successful precedent for the next war. They also left us with interesting and often different perspectives on service life to their male colleagues. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed the presentation. this evening, and uh, hopefully it's given you an insight into some of the real words and the real experiences of the people who did this. So thank you for listening, and we just remember their service of a century ago. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Okay, so by 1918, there were some German uh, uh, Rumpler bomber um, reconnaissance aircraft, two-seat reconnaissance aircraft, which had very powerful cameras, very capable cameras, uh, with Zeiss lenses, the best quality lenses in the world, the German cameras. And they could both fly and take very sharp photographs at 22,000 feet. Uh, At that altitude, they did have oxygen. They had bottled oxygen with kind of tubes with pipes with uh, whipped ends to them because if you put your lips on them and sucked off of them, your lips would stay behind if you pulled yourself away. Um, So the Germans had that and they would be up there for, for hours just doing this very accurate camera work. They thought they were absolutely immune up there, but uh, Sopwith developed aircraft like the Sopwith Dolphin, which was around for most of 1918, and that was capable of just about touching just slightly over 21,000 feet. And they didn't have an oxygen supply with them. The men went up, they had... That was the RAF's first multi-gun fighter. Most aircraft were equipped with two machine guns but this could have three or even four machine guns fitted to it. Very often the two forward-firing Vickers, but then a Lewis gun mounted firing over the spinning propeller, upwards, and with that last bit of upwards fire, you could just about close that gap between you and the enemy reconnaissance aircraft. And the least you could do is wake them up, (laughs) tell them that you're there, and really mess up their concentration and and send them going back. But, of course, the the British crews didn't have the the oxygen supply, and they would go up, they would experience migraines, nausea, shivers, um, you know, extreme sort of stresses on on their bodies. And we're only talking, talking about sort of fit 19, 20-year-olds, that kind of thing. So, really, it's, it's an unnatural altitude to be climbing to in an open cockpit aeroplane with no oxygen supply. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> another, another question, perhaps? Uh, yes, sir. You, the picture of McCallum. Yes. How did they change the, um, the magazine? Of okay, so, so yes. The, the Vickers machine gun was the, the heavy machine gun that was fixed to the fuselage of the plane, and that uh, drew on belts of ammunition which were rolled up in, in magazines in compartments in the plane, and that's how that gun fired. But the, the Lewis gun, the American gun, had been adapted for air uh, flying and was basically kept cool in the, in the air, the extremely cold temperatures at high altitude. And it had a, a drum, like a cartridge, with rounds of ammunition um, radiating out from the centre. 
and you have to uh, lock that in, to give it a twist to lock it into position, screw it in effectively. Uh, and um, to, to change, when the drum is spent all its rounds, you have to do the reverse movement with, by bringing the, the gun down on its, on its foster mount, on its bracket, which has uh, sort of elastication and so on, down on a little track, moving it down, grabbing hold of the, 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 the drum, twisting it, taking it off. And at, at that time, you've got to still try to remain in control of the plane. So you've got to have, you've got to have the stick in between your knees, trying to keep as straight and level as you can. And you'll be off your seat, your seat will be back there, so you'll be standing, doing that. And you've got to, if you're in a combat situation, you've got to try and break away from the fight. But this doesn't mean that they, they want to stop fighting. You might find as you're changing your drum, enemy aircraft converging on you, firing at you. So, incredibly difficult. And they were meant to retain the drum because the armourer wanted to have that back to reinsert more rounds when, when you're on the ground and would be rather cross when, as many of them did, they just thought, oh, hell with this, and they just chucked it out outside and put the next one in. Fascinating. Another question, perhaps. Sorry, Gavin. Yes, sir, right at the back. Yes, you. This, this was a, yeah, that's right. This was a big problem. This is a, a de Havilland, an Airco DH4. And the, the pilot's position is, well, you can see it at the front there. Um, so we see the, there's the pilot and there's the observer. And they really can't communicate at all. Shouting at the top of your voice doesn't really do much good at all. You can't really hear that above the engine noise. Um, what they tended to do was slam their palm of their hand or their fist <laughs> into the head of the other person or grip them around the shoulders and shake them. <laughs> if, but in this case, they couldn't. And literally point at things. Sometimes on the plane, on the, on the, the top wing, there was a little panel fixed there which had a ray, an array of symbols such as a an allied uh, roundel cockade or a German cross to identify. So you could say, I think it's one of those. You know, it's one of our aircraft, not one of the... And, you could, and then you had other symbols as well whereby you could talk for training in Gosport. Uh, Major um, Smith Barry developed a, a speaking tube where you had a, called the gospel tube, where you had a, a speaking tube to speak into uh, and a little tube that ran through the fuselage of the plane, culminating in something a bit like a stethoscope, which you had inserted into your leather flying helmet. And you'd still have to yell, but you could hear, hear the instructor yelling at you and you had the same thing going back to the instructor. But that was only ever for training. That was not... Uh, that was not adequate for the sort of fast action situations that you had in, in battle. So, all very difficult. One more question, perhaps? Yes, sir. Could, could you briefly uh, give a, an idea of the numbers of the aircraft by model type? Um, the most numerous, etc. Um, well, the most numerous reconnaissance aircraft are these. This is the... Um, the BE-2 series produced by the Royal Aircraft Factory. Because, of course, in the First World War, the RAF meant the Royal Aircraft Factory, and that was at Farnborough. So, so that's the BE, and there were thousands of BEs, all structurally very good aircraft, very stable. There was a slight dihedral on the wings. They were self-writing. They had uh, excellent flying, handling controls didn't do anything dramatic at all. They were very stable. They weren't very manoeuvrable. So they were perfect for using wireless. They were perfect for signalling from. They were perfect for camera work. All the things that the army uh, fighting on the battlefields needed aircraft to do. But when they were jumped on by, by something new called a fighter plane, they were absolutely hopeless. 
<laughs> and initially they were not armed, so, so again it was improvised armament until you started to put machine guns on. The successor was the RE8, which was well armed, but although its performance was a, a little bit better than the BEs, it wasn't that great. So, so the BEs and the REs formed the real backbone of uh, everything that was, was being done. Um, of course, fighter types, there are a lot of different fighter types. Um, initially, we had trouble getting engines, and so we had a lot of French engines. Uh, initially, uh, some of our own types were, were difficult coming through. The supply was, wasn't adequate, so we, we were buying French uh, uh, or Italian aircraft. But uh, a lot of our best fighter designs were Sopwiths, and it was the Navy that were buying a lot of those, whereas the Royal Flying Corps were mainly going for aircraft designed by Farnborough. Um, and they, the Farnborough products didn't tend to be that great, certainly not for combat. They were very good for, for army cooperation jobs, but not for combat. And it wasn't until the SE-5, the SE-5A, which was the superb fighter of 1917-18, did Farnborough produce a really remarkable fighting machine, as good as the other famous fighting machine of the war, which, as you know, was the Sopwith Camel. Okay, so between them, the, the Camel and the SE-5A were rather like in the Battle of Britain, the Hurricane and the Spitfire, but it could be argued that the, the SE-5A was more like the Spitfire in some ways. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs>